the risen king. Luke 24. I don't know about you, and I realize we all come to worship gathering in different states of uh, awareness and consciousness. Some of us, you know, sometimes we're bringing in little kids and we can't be focused very well, but sometimes we got that in order and we're, we're ready for worship. Sometimes we just don't prepare for worship and we come in. Some of you don't even want to be here right now. I totally get that. Um, but when I, when I have had the experience of being prepared and aware and gathering in worship somewhere in the middle of the service or maybe coming to the table, there's a part of me that just believes, you know, I think all things are possible. I've seen God a little more clearly. I've reflected on him more than I had before. I think, well, I'm very hopeful. And I think part of the reason for that is when we experience that, the truth is we really, as followers of Jesus, we really do inhabit an alternate storyline in this world. We really do. But it's easy to forget that. And as we go about our life in the world from week to week and day to day, we, uh, it's easy to attach ourselves to these like dead-end storylines where we're concerned about, I don't know, success or popularity or like treating the ultimate of life as authentic self-expression or all this kind of stuff, right? Um, those, maybe not wrong in themselves, of course, but dead ends as dominant storylines. And we come, we worship, What's pull, the curtain's pulled back, and we're reminded, oh, yes, there is a storyline in this world that I don't have to sustain. It's not all up to me. Someone else sustains this, and he invites us into it over and over and over again. And at the heartbeat of that alternate storyline in this world is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today, Luke 24, the resurrection. We've been, uh, you, this is like an Easter passage, right? But it's not Easter because we've been going through Luke and we're just here. Luke 24, the risen king. I have a relative in my family line on my dad's side, very close to me, who in a former generation uh, was dating a girl and she ended up pregnant, right? You got his girlfriend pregnant. And that was a generation where you just get married if that's the case. Uh, shotgun weddings, I think they call it, like dad with the shotgun type of thing. I don't know if that was the case, but so he took this woman to the courthouse, justice of the peace, they did all things, they did the vows, they exchanged rings, they had the kiss, they signed the papers, and on the way home from the courthouse, on the way to the honeymoon, he dropped the woman at her mother's house, and he went home to his mother's house, and that summarize the rest of their relationship. They never lived together. They got married, and then they did not have a life together. And we would say, something is wrong with that picture, right? Marriage isn't the end of something. It's, ideally, (laughs) it's the beginning of something. To have a wedding, to have a marriage without a life together would say, something is wrong. It's supposed to be the beginning of something, not the end of something. Oftentimes, I think we are tempted to treat the resurrection as the end of something instead of the beginning of something. As if the resurrection is sort of the, um, the exclamation point. On the end of the sentence, Jesus is Lord. See, boom, Jesus is Lord. Resurrection proves it. There it is. Okay? While that may be true, I think Scripture teaches us that the resurrection is better as a beginning point. Maybe like in Spanish, if you're Spanish speakers or Spanish writers, the exclamation points at, exclamation points at the beginning of the sentence as well, right? And as a question mark would be if it's a question. The resurrection is the beginning of something as well. 
And Scripture teaches us over and over that the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of this thing called the kingdom of God. And the big $64,000 theological term is inaugurated eschatology. Everybody say that with me. Inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Very good. You can use that as a, at a cookout later and sound really weird. Don't actually say that out loud. But what it means, eschatology is, means ultimate things. Inaugurated means begun. So we are a, uh, we're familiar with the concept of inauguration because when there's a presidential changeover, the president, be that man or woman, is inaugurated January 20th, I believe. They're elected into office and they're inaugurated. And then their reign begins. And they start to impose their will. Because we're a, a republic, they can't impose their will too much. Usually that's pretty good because they're just people. We don't want their will imposed absolutely. But it begins to be imposed at the inauguration. And so right now, we're under the, if you will, this is a stretch, the kingdom of Joseph Biden. Before we were under the kingdom of Donald Trump. And then Barack Obama. Like, I don't even care what you think of the people. This, you get this concept. Someone comes to power and their kingdom is inaugurated. The resurrection was the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom. This kingdom story into which we are invited and which, to which we are connected. A couple weeks ago, uh, July 4th, Dustin Sutherland preached on Ephesians 2, and he taught us uh, uh, very clearly how we are united with Christ in his resurrection. Therefore, if you are in Christ by faith, if you have union with Jesus, you are really and truly spiritually united to Jesus who's already raised so that his resurrection in some way is our resurrection. We, and, and so we taste this, this coming future because we're already part of it. And so if you're walking with Jesus, the Spirit is living in you, you taste a little bit of, oh, maybe perhaps I do sense a little bit more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in my life. That's a foretaste of the coming fullness of the kingdom. We've used the illustration here of foretaste like you're walking through the kitchen and you have this great pot of white chicken chili that's ready, that's going to be for dinner. And you look around and you realize that your wife is not in the kitchen and you take a spoon out and you taste it. It's, not the, it's the real taste of the real thing. It's just not the fullness of what's coming. Guys, if you're in Christ, you are a foretaste of coming attractions. The spirit of the living God living in you is the foretaste of the coming kingdom because Jesus has been raised as the beginning of that kingdom. That's what we're looking at this morning. And I realize this may be a familiar passage as a lot of these Easter and Christmas passages are, so I want to just walk through it and make some observations uh, maybe they're old observations to you, but uh, probably not. So let's look at this. Luke 24. Let's remember the context. That Jesus has been crucified. He dies at about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. By the time they get him down from the cross... The Jewish Sabbath is about to start, which will start at 6 o'clock on Friday. Because they have to do some preparation, they don't have time to, ad to adequately care for the body and prepare it for burial, to put all the embalming spices on and all that kind of stuff. So what would happen is they would have got him down from the cross, uh, wiped him down, hastily wrapped him up in some linen cloth, and put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Right? Put him in the tomb. A large stone is rolled in front of it. We know from the other Gospels that Roman centurions guard the stone. And then, then they have to go make preparations for the Sabbath. And so then from 6 o'clock Friday night to 6 o'clock Saturday night 
It's Sabbath, which means they do nothing. They prepare not to work, and then they do not work. So 6 o'clock Saturday night, Sabbath is over, but the sun is down. So the way until the very next morning, this would have been early April in Jerusalem, sun up is about 6.30, so maybe 6.30 or 7. On Sunday morning, the women go to the tomb. Now, if you're counting, they are anticipating a dead body that's been dead for about 41 hours. Okay? Now, it's not super hot in Israel in April. Average high is in the mid-70s or so, but hot enough. And I know nothing about decomposing bodies, but the internet does. And it says that a body decomposing for about 12 hours will begin to smell. So though I don't know anything about dead bodies, uh, who did would be people in the first century. Because death was much more familiar to them. There were no hospitals. There were no uh, undertakers. There were no funeral homes. If somebody died, the family took care of the body. And they knew the clock was ticking. Right? So... By Sunday morning, these women who have been grieving for a day and a half over Jesus' death are going to the tomb and they are stealing themselves. They are preparing for a stench and a lot of cleanup activity. Just trying to be realistic about what they're actually experiencing. These are some courageous and tough women. That's where the story picks up, Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, that would be the embalming spices, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So just a couple observations here. It's the first day of the week. There's a, there's a as we saw last week, there's this creation and new creation theme going on. It was like the end of the world last week, if you remember, when darkness came over the land. But the way the gospel says it is when the sun's light failed. Now, can you imagine the sun's light failing? That would be the end of the world. That's exactly the point. The first words we hear in creation is, let there be light. Here at the death of Christ, the light is going out. Darkness covers the land. I didn't mention this last week, but the veil of the temple is torn in two, embroidered on the external side of the veil of the temple are the sun, moon, and stars. It would have been a picture of the cosmos being ripped in half. What this is, the the crucifixion is saying, this is the end. And then there's silence, Sabbath. And then on the first day of the week, which in the creation account is God creating, it is recreation. Just like when we did the death is arrested song, they stopped after, as though darkness had won. There was a pause, a stop. That's what was going on on that Sabbath. And then God, through the Spirit, raises Jesus. They went to the tomb. This is the women. By the way, this is not an apologetic for the resurrection. I've preached on that before. I can give you a book on that if you want. This would ne- women would never be the first witnesses to the resurrection if, this w- if somebody was making this up. In that culture, women could not even testify in court. They were not considered credible witnesses. I'm not saying it's the way it should be. I'm just telling you how it was in that culture, right? Um, it's a patriarchal Roman Jewish culture. It just The women couldn't testify in court. So if you're making it up, you're not going to have women as the first witnesses of this. Oh, and a little bit later, the, the disciples appear completely incompetent. So the male leaders are incompetent. The women are the witnesses. If you're making this up, you would, you would switch that, right? Just That's one little evidence for the validity of this. 
they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is one of those places that really rewards careful Bible readers. What's going on here? This phrase, Lord Jesus, this might seem in the weeds, but it's important here in a second, I promise. Jesus has been called Lord since about, since his baptism and the spirit of the Lord rests on him. He begins to be called Lord over and over, like 40 times, and it abruptly stops right when Peter denies him, and it says he remembered the words of the Lord, and he ran out after he denied him. And then in all the crucifixion, all the trial account, and all the crucifixion account, Jesus is not called Lord one time. And New Testament theologians point out how that is uh, the human uh, judgment on Jesus' identity is that he is not Lord. Even though through this whole thing, there's a theme of innocence. He's declared innocent by Pilate. He's declared innocent by Herod. He's even declared innocent by a thief on the cross and a Roman centurion who crucified him. And he's rejected. He's rejected by everyone, even though he's Lord. So much so that um, in 2352, I put this in your insert, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, there's a parallel to that exact phrase down in 23, 24-3, now after the resurrection, catch what the gospel says, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, the phrase is back. A careful Bible reader says, wait, if he was Lord, 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 it stopped, and now it's back. What's happening? What's happening here is, as scholars tell us, is that this, the, the Lord, the authority word Lord and the personal word, word Jesus are being put together. Something new is happening to communicate that the one who is risen and ascended and authoritative is the same personal one we saw in the Gospels. This is actually the first time the phrase Lord Jesus is ever used in the Gospels. And then after this, you might know that Luke also wrote the book of Acts, it's used com- a couple more dozen times in Acts. There's a name change that's happened here. And that's a significant thing. When my, my daughter Elizabeth got married last year in December and went from Elizabeth Williams to Elizabeth Shackleton, the first time that she showed up on my phone, I cried. Because she was no longer Elizabeth Williams. There was a significant change, right? I'm glad for the change, of course. But it was just a shock because there's a name change. And it was a, a significant symbolic meaning. There was a change right here. Jesus is now, from this point on, called the Lord Jesus. None of the other Gospels mention this. Luke has. So what's it saying? The Jesus who in Luke 4 has a desire to release the oppressed and all types of oppression, that's the same Jesus reigning in heaven right now. The same Jesus who in Luke 7 looks at this one, this widow who's lost her only son, and his he has compassion. His, it says his bowels, his guts go to water. Oh, his heart go out. That's, that's the same response Jesus, the authoritative ruling king right now, has toward those who are in grief. The same Jesus who in Luke 7, uh, when that, the prostitute came in and she was being mocked by all these leading men, probably some have used her services, Jesus honors her and he lifts her up and he ennobles her in front of all these people. He covers her shame. That's the same attitude that Jesus has right now who is reigning in heaven. 
The same Jesus who in Luke 10, when the gospel goes out, he rejoices that Satan falls like lightning to the earth. Jesus in heaven rejoices as the gospel goes into our workplaces, as the gospel goes into the south side of Indianapolis, or in lands where it's never been named. This Jesus in Luke 11 who says, hey guys, why don't you pray and the Father will give more of the Holy Spirit to you, more influence? This is the same Jesus who has authority to give Holy Spirit now. Jesus in Luke 12 who says, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Still says these words to us, fear not. This same Jesus who in Luke 15 gives these parables about a lost coin and a lost sheep and a lost son, and he is the one who seeks and saves the lost. Guess what? He seeks and saves the lost, and he is unhindered by human limitation. The same Jesus in Luke 18 who loves the rich young ruler enough to say, your love for wealth is dragging your soul down to hell, and I love you enough to tell you that. The same Jesus who in one chapter later with Zacchaeus says, good news, rich Zacchaeus, salvation is coming to your house today. Why is that? He comes to seek and save the lost. Now he's Lord Jesus, risen and enthroned with that same passion. That's that's all caught up in there, that phrase, Lord Jesus. Okay, verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They go in. These two figures we take often take to be angels. Talk about that in a second. Say, remember what he said back in Galilee, back in Luke 9? This must happen. This must happen. One of the things that Luke, in his gospel account, captures is this word must all the time. It's on the lips of Jesus. We call it the divine imperative. From God's perspective, it must happen. It must be that the Son of Man dies, delivers in the hands of uh, ungodly men, and it must be that he rises again. This is, I put this in your insert here, um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then it goes on to say, and then he appeared to like four or 500 people. This is of first importance. It's a, it, it must happen. Here's a, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of it. Um, the intention of God for his people is to unite us, not just to Jesus' death, but also to his resurrection. It's what he intended to happen. It must happen. Now, if we were united to him only in his death, I think I can say this without being charged with heresy. Um, Maybe that would take care of our eternal state. United to him in his death, our sins are paid for. But that wasn't the only intention. It must be that he raises from the dead. It must be that his people are united to him in his resurrection. In this new life power that flows into our life now or can flow into our life now. Part of this is me, means we have a new authority in Jesus. If If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he would be 
interesting. Now, he might be a false prophet, I suppose, but, um, but he, he would say interesting things. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he would be interesting. Like Plato is interesting, right? Aristotle's interesting. Aristotle's not really interesting, but Plato's interesting. A lot of people throughout history have been interesting. Buddha's interesting. Sun Tzu is interesting. Nietzsche's interesting. He's weird, but he's interesting. In our generation, I don't know, Jordan Peterson's interesting. There's interesting people out there. He'd be interesting. Like any other person who died or will die. But if he rose from the dead, Jesus is not interesting. If he didn't rise from the dead, we would say, oh, I'll get to Jesus' words when I can, because there's a lot of good words out there. If he did rise from the dead, our only rational response to Jesus is, what, what else did he say? Because he has words of life. Nobody's broken the power of death. Nobody, but this one has. How can I, I have to, I have to get to his words right now. I got to leave right now from church, go home, skip lunch, and read the words. These are the words of life. And he intends for us, for us to live in this resurrection power this power right now to flow back into our life. So a Christianity that knows nothing of our own need. If if our version of Christianity is like, I'm good. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We cut ourselves off from the resurrection power of Jesus that's available to us. Right? If If our version of Christianity is comparing sort of our righteousness to the righteousness of other people, We're cutting ourselves off from the resurrection power that's available to us. Or if our version is comparing our sort of righteousness to our past selves, well, I'm growing. We're cutting ourselves off from the resurrection power that's available to us. He must be delivered. Okay. Um, Oh. Okay, can we talk about the two witnesses just for a second? Sorry, we're going to talk about that just for a second. Um, this is one of those things where, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, we talked about the place of the skull. And I said, not quite sure, but it sure is interesting. Another one of these are in this passage. So this is not me saying this is exactly what the Scripture says. I'm just asking, maybe it is. And so two-minute nerd out, okay? Two witnesses. It's this phrase, where is that verse? Verse 4, behold two men. We take this to be angels because in John it says there's two angels. But if you look at the account in John, those angels occur later in the narrative. Who are these two men? They might be angels, but this phrase, idu andres duo, is a specific phrase in Greek that occurs in the writings of Luke three times. Okay, here, witnessing to the resurrection. In Acts 1.10, when Jesus ascends to heaven, it says, behold, two men... Say, why do you stand looking up in heaven? This Jesus will return just as he left. So they're witnessing to the ascension and perhaps the return of Christ. And one other time in the Gospel of Luke. Right after Jesus makes this, dec- you know, this uh, declaration in Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and on the third day be raised. After that is the account of the, tr- the transfiguration. And in verse 30... Well, I'll just read verse 28. Now, that eight days after these things, he took, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men, duo, Andre, or, uh, Idu, Andres, duo, the first time this specific phrase is mentioned, 
Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. I think the two men in the tomb were Moses and Elijah. I don't know. Maybe. Representative of the law and the prophets, who, by the way, Jesus, at a few verses later, will say, didn't he showed them how the, uh, the Moses and all the prophets testified to him. Okay. I don't know. I just think it's interesting. Again, careful Bible reading, like, oh, that... Behold, two men. I've heard that before. The first time it was introduced was Moses and Elijah, and it happens two more times at significant places, the transfiguration, the resurrection, and the ascension. So, I don't know. Um, now, unfortunately, I can't really find anybody to back me up on that except one scholar. Uh, so, I think it is interesting. Maybe it's a Bible breadcrumb. Think about that. Write a dissertation on it if you want to. All right. All right. Back at this. Verse 8. So they said this, and the women, it says, they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Okay, here's the crazy thing. If you go back to Luke 9, when, when Jesus first said this, the women weren't there. It was only the disciples. How did the women know Jesus said these things? The disciples had told them. They go back and tell the disciples, remember what you said to us? It's happened. They're like, no, nah, we don't think so. They're in grief. So like, let's just make a, a, a point here to see. Sometimes grief really makes us struggle with our faith to believe things. Sometimes we can't even believe the things Jesus has said when we're stuck in the, in the muck of our own grief and, and being downcast of soul, right? The resurrection's hard to hold on to. It's hard to remember that this is a central reality of first importance. Uh, this is one of the best systematic theologies of all time, Charles Hodge. Any theologian would know, oh, Charles Hodge, got him. Old Princeton. This is 2,000 pages of systematic theology. It is not riveting. It is very good, though. It's very accurate and long and long-winded. And in these 2,000 pages, he devotes a whopping four pages to the resurrection. He's one of the most brilliant theologians of all time. Look, the resurrection is hard to hold on to. It is hard for us to hold on to the reality that you have been raised with Christ and there's a resurrection power available to us now as we entrust ourselves to him with faith. And that power of the future can flow back into our life. They could not hold on to it except one of them did. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went marveling at what had happened. The importance of the linen cloths there being that shows that the body wasn't taken. They would keep the cloths on it. They took the body, grave robbers. So what happens is Jesus rises from the dead and unwraps these things, right? But Peter, what, where's the last thing we saw, time we saw Peter? He was running also then, but he was running out of the courtyard after he had denied Jesus. Imagine the worst and most embarrassing thing you've ever done on display, in print, for billions of people to read for 2,000 years. This is Peter. Now, I don't know. Did he go back and tell the people on Sabbath? Nobody else was there. Like, hey, guys, you're not going to believe what I did. I denied the Lord. I don't think he did. I wouldn't, right? So it's Sabbath. You're not allowed to work to distract yourself. All Peter can do is sit with what he's done all night, all Sabbath, all night of Sabbath night, until those early hours of the morning. And I can envision Peter, like he's sitting down 
on the ground or on some stone bench, and the women come in, and they're telling what they've seen, and he remembers. But other disciples are like, this is an idle tale. And as they're talking, he's, it says he rose. He, he, he got up. And I can just see him think, wait, is it possible that this deep shame in my soul could actually be covered? Is it possible that I'm actually not at the end of a story, but in the middle of a story? And in the middle of a story that ends very well? Guys, in Christ, we are in the middle of a story that ends well. We may not know the details of it between now and then, but we know that it ends, and we know that it ends well. And we can hold on to one who broke the power of death for us. When Peter took the story into his own hands, he made a complete wreck of it. We've done the same thing, all of us. Here, Peter is beginning to see if I can release the story back to Jesus and move into this story, this story of the resurrection reality, this alternate story in the world that I get to be part of, life becomes whole and full again. That's an invitation to all of us this morning. Part of the reason we go to the communion table each week is because we see it as a, as a re-invitation back into that resurrection-empowered story. So if you're in Christ, as we're going to go to the table, this is for you. This table is for you. If you're not in Christ, we would say, just wait. Do business with God first. Come and talk to me or talk to one of the elders about what it means to actually follow Jesus. Or maybe if you want to lay hold of Christ today, come to the table. Make that your first act of laying hold of Jesus, of entering this resurrection story, and then come and talk to me. Scripture would warn us, though, like if you're a follower of Jesus and you're, li- you, you're living in a way that is contrary to his words and you don't care and you're not dealing with that, don't come to the table because it's like eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Likewise, because you're telling a lie about the gospel. Likewise, if you are in unresolved conflict with another person in the body of Christ and you're not even trying to resolve it, you don't even care, first go be reconciled with them. Don't tell a lie about the body of Christ, right? So I'm going to pray and then invite you to come to the table. The way we're doing it now is we've got four stations. We will come up and...